Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Just out of curiosity, do uh, do any of you speak Yiddish? No. No. Okay. All right, so I won't. I won't. Because my parents wanted to talk about me and my right. brother, and so they understood. Teach I've been told I'm a bad rabbi because I don't. <laughs> or a fake one. She fake. learned to understand a little bit in college when she took German. Right. Then I can understand my yeah. rabbi. Right. So. All right. So then I won't give the lecture in Yiddish. That's it's, good. You know. One generation removed. Right, I understand, I understand. All right, so let's begin with a slice of Jewish life vignette uh, that describe events uh, that occurred during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, um, and which was originally reported on in the Forverts, which was the biggest Yiddish, biggest, most successful Yiddish newspaper, on September 19th, 1907. And the report reads as follows, and I'm not going to read it in Yiddish, I've, I've translated it for your benefit. Yom Kippur services in a Clinton Street hall were disrupted due to a fight over a chair. When Joseph Rand showed up in Shoal with his family, he discovered that one Herman Garber was sitting in one of the seats he had reserved. Rand informed Garber that he was in one of his seats, but Garber produced a ticket indicating that Rand was wrong and that it was, in fact, his seat. Rand responded by punching Garber in the face. Not to be outdone, Garber tore out part of Rand's beard. The lion-like voice of the cantor was drowned out by the screams and howls of the fighting congregants. In the end, both Rand and Garber were forced to finish the Musaf service in Essex Street Market Court, where they were both held under arrest. So this story offers details of minor events involving unknown figures who do not occupy a significant place in Jewish history. And there's a fairly good reason why they don't. No one in it appears to have accomplished anything of significance, either in a Jewish or general framework, uh, nor are the events in question exceptional in a way that would warrant serious analysis. However, it's of note that there are thousands of similar stories reported on in the Yiddish press from the 1870s through the 1950s, a matter which permits us to look at issues like violence or failure as well as their often unpleasant consequences as distinct phenomena within Jewish life. And taken as a whole, stories of the Jewish lowlife can be considered as a matter for serious study. So Jewish history, like most other history, is largely about elites. Rabbis, scholars, writers, artists, politicians, scientists, and business people rightly fill the rosters of our history books. There's also been a more recent focus on social history, but that also has a more often um, an upwardly mobile trajectory. Studies like Hasia Diners on Jewish peddlers or Adam Mendelssohn's on Jewish garment workers invariably begin with figures of modest origins and end with phenomenal commercial accomplishments. 
and even ostensibly lowbrow studies of Jewish gangsters like Robert Rockaway's or Jenna Weissman Joslitz are framed as upwardly mobile histories of perseverance that, despite engaging in highly illegal activities, conclude with great financial success and sometimes jail. Um, But what is clearly evident is that the historiography is full of Jewish success stories. This doubtlessly makes sense, since that's really the trajectory of most historiography. But it's also of note that all of these histories have their origins in severe poverty, upheaval, and immigration, all of which occurred on a mass scale for Jews during the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. So what, therefore, of a consideration of downwardly mobile Jews, the failures, either those who didn't succeed or who faced traumatic life experiences that exacerbated already problematic situations? Where are the blockheads, the failures, or the just plain strange in the Jewish past? The brief report about Joseph Rand and Herbert, Her, uh, Herman Garber fighting in Shul on Yom Kippur, I, I read at the outset, represents a little-known but eminently interesting corner of Jewish history, one that reveals aspects of Jewish life that have largely escaped the purview of historians. So if most Jewish history books focus on elites, then it's likely that they tend not to consider figures like abortionists, murderers, rioters, prostitutes, bigamists, drunks, extortionists, psychics, and charlatans. Read my book, (laughs) because this is what my book deals with. In in the book, you'll find a man by the name of Rosenzweig who accidentally kills a woman and decides that rather than to dispose of her body in New York, where he lives, that it would be a better idea to pack her body in a trunk and mail it to Chicago. Uh, Then there's Pesach Rubenstein, who uh, decides to murder his housekeeper slash cousin slash lover because he accidentally got her pregnant and found out that his real wife is on her way over to New York from Poland. Among others, there's a 1927 rabbinical court hearing in Warsaw during which the rabbis had to call the police because litigants in a divorce proceeding were smashing chairs over each other's heads and destroying the courtroom. Apparently just another day in Yiddishland. So as noted, marginal events and figures like these do not appear very often in Jewish history books. Scholars haven't taken much interest in uh, Yiddish-speaking sideshow performers, professional wrestlers, or pickpockets. But Yiddish journalists did take an interest, and so did their readers, and their stories fill up the pages of Yiddish daily newspapers, the first form of mass media among Jews, and one of the only places that you will find Jews of all kinds, from brilliant scientists to circus freaks, from rabbis and scholars to tattoo artists and drag queens. The best and worst of everything appear in the pages of uh, Yiddish newspapers, sandwiched together among announcements for things like public debates on the existence of God and and advertisements for post-Passover constipation products. These, among millions of other things you've quite possibly never heard of, unless you read Yiddish newspapers. Now, one of the odd things about the Yiddish press is the way it got started. One might, have, one might think that there would be dozens of Yiddish newspaper in 19th century Eastern Europe, uh, which held the largest Jewish population in the world, the vast, maju- the vast majority of whom used Yiddish as their vernacular. But this region, known as the Pale of Settlement, uh, was controlled by the Russian government and was the area to which they restricted their empire's Jews. 
Under Russian rule, Jews were not permitted to own land. They were limited to certain kinds of occupations uh, and were forced to pay special taxes, among a number of other oppressive issues that made their lives difficult. So it basically goes uh, without saying that a free press in Yiddish or really in any other language in the empire was not a possibility in this time and place. But when Alexander II assumed the throne in 1855, this began to change. In addition to freeing the serfs, he changed some of the legislation surrounding Jews, allowing them a bit more freedom. Some of the Jewish intellectuals involved in the Haskalah, or the Jewish Enlightenment movement, which sought to emancipate Jewish life, saw this as an opportunity to begin publishing newspapers, which they had seen uh, in and read in languages like Russian and German. In particular, a wealthy Odessa-based women's wear manufacturer named Alexander Tsederboim thought it would be a good idea to publish a newspaper uh, to disseminate news to the Jews of the Pale. So with the government connections that he had, uh, he obtained permission to publish a weekly newspaper in Hebrew called Hamelitz. And this is what the first, uh, this is what it looked like. So why publish a newspaper in Hebrew, a liturgical language that no one spoke at the time? And this is 1860. Um, his choice of Hebrew reflects the attitude uh, of Jewish intellectuals toward Yiddish, one that was almost uniformly negative. Jewish elites, many of whom spoke the language themselves, considered Yiddish to be barbaric and deformed, and its speakers, meaning the vast majority of Eastern European Jews, incapable of intelligent thought as long as they spoke it. As long as Jews speak this jargon, as they called it, or Yiddish, they thought the masses will never be able to become civilized, nor will they be able to become proper citizens in the countries in which they reside. Now, when Sederbaum launched this Hebrew paper in 1860, he was only able to get a few hundred paying subscribers, which, to be honest, was a pretty shabby result uh, for the reason, region with the largest Jewish community in the world, which numbered about five to six, five, four to five million people, four to five million Jews. Now, one of his stated motivations was to educate the Jews of the Pale of Settlement. And when he realized that his Hebrew paper wouldn't be able to do it, he reluctantly came to understand that if he wanted a mass audience, he would have to do it in Yiddish. So in 1862, he decided to launch Kol Mavasar, uh, the first Yiddish weekly in the Russian Empire. And this is the first page of the first issue of Kol Mavasar. And I could just point out that um, it's the article that you see in front of you is about the American Civil War. And it's very likely that readers of, uh, of this paper were, um, this is the first time they're reading about America. This is about 20 years before the mass emigration to the United States. So uh, this is something that's entirely new. And what's interesting is the way in which it's described. They, the writer begins by saying, we don't know much about this new country, America. You know, it was a relatively new country in 1862. Uh, but we heard that it's pretty good. They don't seem to care if you're a Christian or a Jew. They, it's something called a republic. They don't, uh, they don't have a king. They have something called a president. Uh, and every four years, the mayors of all the big cities get together and elect the president. So they don't get it completely right. 
but because the reality is, is they don't have elections in this part of the world, and it's not something that they're all that they're all familiar with. So uh, they also say that uh, the country is run by businessmen, uh, and apparently that's still true. So you know, so they were they were very prescient in that in that, in that regard. So. This newspaper would become one of the most important developments in uh, Jewish cultural life in the 19th century. Notably, it became the cradle for modern Yiddish literature. Serialized novels were published in weekly installments. Among them were biting social satires written by authors of outstanding quality. Readers clamored for this material, and on the occasion that a weekly installment didn't didn't appear, the paper would, would be deluged with letters demanding an answer as to why. It's of note that the literary element is the best-known aspect of this newspaper and its history, a testament to the dominance of literary scholarship in Yiddish studies. And unfortunately, interest in the paper's literary component has obscured other aspects, notably the ways in which it brought all kinds of information about the wider world, about current affairs, about history, and science into the small shtetlach into which Jews lived, matters which were no less important to its readers. I should just add that Alexander Tzederborn, the man who published this paper, if you remember, his Hebrew newspaper, Hamelitz, only had about 150 subscribers among a population of four to, four to five million Jews. The, uh, this paper, Kolmavasar, was limited to a print run of 5,000, and all of them sold out. And typically what would happen is one person in a shtetl would subscribe to the paper, and then everyone in the shtetl would read it. Or it would, they would actually have public readings of the paper. Uh, so it became extremely popular. Uh, now, as far as bringing information about the wider world into these small shtetl, like one example of this uh, occurred in November 1862 when an article uh, appears, uh, and it, I, I believe it's in issue three, uh, about the giant sequoia trees in California. Now, this article was probably found in a German periodical and then translated, but it had to be translated for an audience that had no concept of trees that were described as being taller than the tallest tower you had ever seen and wider than the widest house you had ever seen. There's no, you know, conceptual idea for this kind of thing. They also, uh, and also the trees were, were estimated to be eight to 10,000 years old. So this article appears about a month later. A letter from a reader appears in the paper that says, Dear Editor, I'd like to tell you how much I enjoy your paper. I'm learning a great deal. Uh, I especially enjoyed this article about these giant trees in this place called California. But I have to tell you that it's not possible for a tree to be eight to 10,000 years old when the world itself is only 5,623 years old. So in a nutshell... This episode explains, you know, both the breadth of knowledge of Jews in the shtetl and the way in which the newspaper completely exploded their worldviews. Um, so these newspapers, to a large degree, were responsible for making Jews modern. Uh, you know, Yiddish newspapers uh, taught Jews all about the world around them, served as guides to their new lives in big cities or new countries. It was the only form of mass media available to them, uh, and filled them with, in, with information about world and local affairs, taught them about history and politics, uh, and also about how to survive in new environments. I can just show you here. This is the 
first page of the first issue of the Forverts, uh, which I mentioned is the m- largest, most successful uh, Yiddish newspaper in history. Uh, by the 1920s, its print run was about a quarter of a million. Its readership was upwards of a million people daily, which is comparable to the English language newspapers in New York City. It was really a very significant phenomenon. And I could just add as an aside, uh, the first column article on this page uh, discusses how about how since the Jews have moved in, and this, this, this is from 1897, describes how, how since the Jews have moved into the Lower East Side in large numbers and have supplanted the Irish uh, immigrant community, that all of the Irish pubs that dotted the neighborhood have disappeared and have been replaced by a type of store that Jews need more than anything else. So what is that? What, what kind of store do Jews need more than anything? Butcher. Butcher. Not correct, but, uh, but they do need that. Exists, that also exists. But what, what, what do Jews need more than anything? What's the most important kind of store for, for a Jew? Books and clothing. Books and clothing. Nope. Grocery store. Nope. Pharmacy. <laughs> Jews need medication. That's, so that's... that's, that's, that's a, a human it's a human phenomenon, but the Irish needed pubs. Jews needed pharmacies. That's, that's the difference. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. I've been a pharmacist all my adult life. And I feel I learned something amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so Yiddish newspapers taught Jews how to vote, how to buy insurance, how to walk down the street without getting pickpocketed. All kinds of seemingly simple matters that confronted them when they arrived in a big city or in a new country. The Yiddish press even taught them how to play baseball. So here's an article from the Forwards from 1909 that explains how to play baseball for in Yiddish for Jewish immigrants. And this is, you know, I guess supposed to be the polo grounds in, uh, in Manhattan, which no longer exists. Um, they also gave uh, readers advice about uh, all kinds of matters, and especially their love lives. So one of the most famous columns in the forwards was called a Bintel Brief, or a bundle of letters. And there are a couple of... Uh, uh, translated uh, books that have these letters, and they're really they're really kind of engaging if you uh, if you can find them. I don't, you know they may I'm not sure if they're in print anymore. Um, but basically, writing and writers played an enormously important role in the modernization and in the secularization of Jews. Regarding the role of the writer in modern Jewish society during the early 20th century, Alexander Mukdoini, a Yiddish cultural critic, wrote, and I'm quoting: "The writer had become a new kind of rabbi." Uh, not one that takes payments for queries, not one who gives blessings and advice, but one who teaches. He says something new, something beautiful, something electrifying. So for an increasingly secular Jewry, writers and journalists were part of a new intellectual class that was supplanting rabbis as a communal authority. Now, as it grew into a true mass media during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Yiddish press would eventually cater to virtually every political and social orientation. Everything from anarchist to traditionally religious and whatever lay between appeared on newsstands. Because the press was the only form of mass media, every organization under the sun published something. For a culture Jewish intellectuals considered devoid of intelligent thought, and 
the variety of Yiddish publications that came into existence beginning in the early 20th century is absolutely staggering. There was quite literally something for everyone. And just very quickly, I want to go through a number of, I want to show you uh, a number of Yiddish publications just so you can get an idea of the breadth of this, um, of this uh, print culture. So this is the first Yiddish uh, daily newspaper in Yiddish. It's called Yiddish's Tageblatt. Uh, it had a kind of conservative cultural orientation. It called itself orthodox, but it was also kind of sensationalistic. Um, uh, like all these papers had lots of interesting material on, on all kinds of things. Uh, this is the Wahrheit. This was a socialist and Zionist newspaper. Uh, it was an offshoot of, a fo- of the Vorwärts. Uh, many new Yiddish papers were created by um, internal fighting in one newspaper. An editor or a writer would break away and start his own newspaper. That's what happened in this case. Like couples. Yes, yeah, it's, it's like everything. That's, you know, like doctor's offices. You know, you, everyone's starting something new. Uh, this is the Freiarbeiter Stimme. This is an anarchist weekly. Uh, if you want to read about, you know, Emma Goldman and free love, you could find it in here. Uh, this is the Morgan Journal. This is another conservative uh, daily newspaper. Uh, this was one of the few morning papers in Yiddish. I don't know. I don't think you guys are old enough to remember morning and evening papers. Oh, yeah. Personally, we are. Okay. I'm sorry. No, it's great. Actually, it's good to have an audience that has that because, to be honest, uh, when I give this lecture to college students, yeah, they, don't they don't know what newspapers are. Right. They've never read them. Uh, well, no, some of them have. But, uh, right, so the Morgan Journal was a morning paper, and what that meant is it was the main source for classified ads. So if you needed a job, you typically bought the Morgan Journal. Um, next is Der Tog. Uh, Der Tog was uh, considered a more intellectual newspaper, kind of like the New York Times of, um, of the Yiddish papers. Uh, then you have the Freiheit, which is... Um, uh, the last of the Yiddish dailies, it's a Yiddish communist newspaper. Then there's a whole array of weekly and monthly periodicals catering to all kinds of different interests. So you have uh, the Freund Journal, the uh, Jewish Women's Home Journal, magazine for women. You have the Yiddish Farmer, the Jewish farmer. So it may come as a surprise, maybe not. There were a lot of Jewish farmers in the Catskills, in New Jersey, in California, uh, even in places like Wyoming and Nebraska. And they needed to learn the basics of farming in Yiddish, you know, in their own language. These, these are the first ones that have any English in them at all. Uh, like it says, the Jewish farmer. Right. In English, were some of these papers solely trying to expand outside of the Yiddish community? So, you know, some of them were. So, for example, in the 20s, a number of the Yiddish dailies began uh, uh, publishing English-language pages. They would have two or three English-language pages in their papers. And the purpose of that was so to, was to give the children of immigrant readers something to read in these papers. Um, in this case, it's not entirely clear why they write it in English. Uh, in some... It, it almost actually... In almost every example, and I could, you can go back, it, there will be English titles. And in this case, you don't have it. But Oh, this one has the day at the very top. So one of the reasons that they, that they do have English titles 
is for the newspaper sellers. It's for the newsstands because in a lot of cases, the people selling the papers couldn't read Yiddish and they needed some sort of indication as to what this actually was. So if you run a newsstand and you don't know Yiddish, you need to know that, I mean, you know, that it's, even though there's a guy in it with a plow and a horse, you don't necessarily know if it's not in English, you know, what this magazine is. In addition to that, you have things like this, Schriften, which was a literary and arts magazine. Uh, this is another Inzich. This is a Yiddish poetry and, and uh, sort of high literary magazine. You also had a very um, active Yiddish humor press. Uh, lots of satire magazines with parodies of the news and, uh, and you know, humorous criticism of, of cultural, culture and politics. Lots of cartoons as well. Uh, this one is um, a socialist literary magazine. And this one is a communist literary magazine. And what's uh, really interesting to me in a lot of ways is the artwork. A lot of the artwork on the covers is really kind of avant-garde and, and progressive in a way that you, you know, that most people don't associate Yiddish with this, with this type of art. Uh, here's another example, Te'alit, which is a theater magazine, uh, you know, magazine about, about Yiddish theater. Then you have food-related magazines. These, both of these are uh, magazines for Yiddish-speaking vegetarians. Uh, I think that, you know, today vegetarianism has become extremely popular. Uh, it was also extremely popular uh, around the, before, during, and after World War I, especially among Jews. Uh, uh, this is a um, magazine for children run by communists. So, attempt to indoctrinate uh, kids. You also had a lot of um, uh, occupational magazines. So hat makers had their own magazine, um, you know, had their own magazines, um, all, you know, pants makers, any kind of industry had its own publication because people in those industries needed to know what was happening. Uh, you know, there's no internet. There's, there's no way, you know, there's no other way that for them to find out what's going on in their worlds. So this is just one example. This one is called In Yiddish Der Laundryman, which is the laundryman. And it's a magazine for Jews involved in the laundry businesses. Um, now, you have the same phenomenon in Eastern Europe. Uh, the, in the, during the 19th century, only two Yiddish newspapers were permitted by the Russian government. Uh, by the turn of the century, they realized that, that a uh, popular underground and illegal socialist press was burgeoning. So in order to counter that, they allowed the publication of a Yiddish daily. And this was in 1903. And it's actually quite late. Um, uh, you know, for a Yiddish daily to appear in 1903, you know, by this time in the United States, you already have a number of them. But under the czars, the, the experience was different, and it was, it was much more controlled. So this is called the Freund, or the Friend, and it was the first Yiddish daily in, um, in, the, in the Russian Empire. Then you subsequently have um, uh, dailies that are um, daily newspapers in Yiddish that mostly come out of Warsaw. Um, this is one, one of them. It was a Zionist daily uh, published beginning in 1908. Uh, very, the most this was the most popular Yiddish newspaper in Poland. Uh, you also have Moment, uh, or Moment, which uh, there's a 
a contemporary magazine called Moment Magazine. It's named after this. And this was also a very popular daily newspaper. You also have uh, Unser Express, which was the Yiddish tabloid daily in interwar Poland. And like the United States, you also had a you know, sort of wide array of uh, different kinds of weeklies and monthlies in Yiddish in Eastern Europe. So this is Literatia Blätter. That's a good question. Would the, there be much variation in the Yiddish spoken in Eastern Europe and the Yiddish spoken in, say, New York? Well, uh, it depends. So what you, have, what you have in Eastern Europe is a much more clear delineation of Yiddish dialects. So, you know, the two main dialects are Litvak and Galiziana, um, and there's a, there's a line that linguists call the Gefilte Fish Line, uh, because on the north of this line, uh, Jews like their Gefilte Fish to be savory, and south of the line, they like it sweet. Now, this line also delineates uh, an, uh, Yiddish dialects between the Galiziana accent and the Litvak accent. It's not exact, but this is, this is what they call it. Now, in New York, things were much more mixed. So you had you know, far more, I guess, what you would call mixed marriages between Galicianers and Litvaks and Romanian Jews. You know, People sort of tended to keep to one another, but once kids were in public school together, it didn't really matter you know, who you were. So... You know, you, the, the Yiddish in New York, and, and Yiddish is like a sponge. It absorbs words from all over the place. So Jews living in New York, you know, English words started to enter the language. If you lived in Buenos Aires and spoke Yiddish, Spanish words would enter the language. And the same goes for anywhere anybody lived. Uh, so these people would always be able to communicate, you know, without problem if you spoke Yiddish, whether you're from New York or from, or from Warsaw. But... You know, there's certain words and accents that you know might take a bit of getting used to if you weren't if you, if you weren't familiar with them. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. The you know, as I said, like in uh, New York, there were a lot of monthlies and weeklies in Yiddish in, in Poland and Eastern Europe. This is one example. This is called Literatia Blätter. It was kind of like the New York Review of Books. It was the sort of most highly esteemed literary magazine in Yiddish. Uh, then you also have um, a specific press for the ultra-Orthodox community. Uh, and this is called Orthodoxischer Jugendblätter, or Orthodox Youth Newspaper. And this was a literary magazine for Orthodox kids. And what's interesting is initially... Uh, Hasidic and uh, very Orthodox rabbis didn't want to permit the existence of newspapers. But once they saw that their constituencies were had started to read secular newspapers, they, they immediately allowed the existence of Orthodox newspapers in order that they not read the secular papers. Now, on the other side of this Orthodox paper, you have this. This is called the Freidenker, or the Freethinker, this is a magazine for Yiddish-speaking atheists. And this group was notorious for doing things like going out in the streets of Warsaw uh, on Yom Kippur after, as synagogue was getting out, and eating apples and smoking cigarettes, or giving out free food only to Jews on Yom Kippur. 
Um, this was their, you know, as, as Jewish atheists, this was their idea of, of, of an activity. Um, and it caused a lot of consternation and anguish uh, and a lot of fistfights uh, among the Jews of Warsaw. You also had things like this, the Yiddish emigrant, the Jewish immigrant. So in 1924, the doors to the United States were virtually closed to immigrants. And uh, the Jews in Poland, had they been given the option, most of them probably would have liked to have gone to the United States or elsewhere because life was not secure for them in Poland to a large degree. So magazines like this provided information about immigration to a variety of places. So you'll find articles about places like Chile or the Dominican Republic, uh, you know, countries that would take a certain quota of Jews each year uh, and how they could, you know, they would talk about the Jewish communities there, what languages they had to learn. Um, you know, how do you, how do you get out of where you are and, and find a new place that's, uh, that's reasonable to go to? You also have in Warsaw the Sports Zeitung. If you wanted to read about boxing or hockey or soccer or tennis in Yiddish, this is the newspaper that you would buy. You also have Volksgesund, which is a very popular, um, f- uh, popular health magazine. Uh, and it had articles like this in it, uh, the title of which is which means don't spit on the floor. So it seems odd that you'd have an article in a magazine about why you shouldn't spit on the floor. So why do you need such a thing? Uh, for Jews who are moving from small villages or shtetlach to the big city, this was important because when you lived in uh, a house that had a dirt floor with straw on it, people spit on the floor and you just covered it up with straw. You know, you didn't want to go outside in the cold and you, this is just what people did. But it was a, obviously an unsanitary practice and when your floor is made of wood or tile, it just sits there. So this was an explanation to people as to why it was a good idea not to spit on the floor. Uh, just like in New York, you had a, um, a very active humor press. Uh, these just two examples, uh, their bluffer, the Bluffer and their Shagets. Um, you know, magazines with cartoons, uh, you know, humorous criticisms, criticisms of popular culture and, uh, and politics. Now, one of the interesting things about um, newspapers in Yiddish culture is people were very attached to them. Uh, they uh, were very beholden to the newspaper that they read. And one of the interesting things that I found, so I work in an, at an organization called YIVO, in New York, and YIVO has, uh, it's probably the largest uh, archive of materials related to Eastern European Jewish life in the world. There's something like 23 million artifacts and documents. And among them are about between two and 300,000 photographs. And among these photographs, I found a fairly large number of people posing with newspapers. And what's interest, what interested me about this is that <coughs> In, in this time and place, in the 1920s and 30s, people did not take a lot of photographs of themselves, especially people that couldn't, you know, most people didn't have cameras. There weren't a lot of, you had to be fairly well off in order to have a portable camera. And so it was interesting to me that people were so proud of the papers that they read that they chose to take photographs of themselves with these papers. So here's, this is a, a, a girl's school in Pinsk, in Poland, 
uh, you know, where the girls are posing with the newspapers they read. Uh, this is another example in Romania in the 1930s. This is in a, a, a Jewish library, uh, and everyone is posing with, with their newspapers. Uh, and you also have individuals doing this. It's not just secular Jews. Here's you know, a young Orthodox man posing with, with the paper that he reads. Uh, and then here's a secular young man reading the uh, socialist, reading, the, reading his socialist paper. Um, and you had the same phenomenon in New York. So here's an example of a group of workers, you know, proudly holding up the forwards, you know, the paper that they identify with, um, you know, which is really, you know, pretty interesting. So I want to I talk briefly uh, about some of the ways in which I fell into this book project. Uh, methodologically, the book was really an accident. Uh, I stumbled into it. I really didn't go looking for these sort of strange stories about Jews, but I stumbled into them uh, during the course of doing research on other things, or in some cases just sitting in the library. So here's one example. I was, uh, when I was in graduate school, a friend who worked in the rare book room of the Jewish Theological Seminary asked me if I would take a look at a strange Yiddish newspaper that he found uh, and uh, see if I could figure out what it was. So it was uncatalogued and undated, it wasn't, it wasn't typeset, but handwritten and lithographed. So that's, that's what, this is what he showed me. So what's more is it had a number of images on the page, on the pages, and one of the images in the, in the lower right uh, is a scene uh, of the police showing a very frightened man, a dead body in the morgue. And I had never seen a Yiddish paper from this time period that looked like this. So I was really very intrigued. Uh, so I read the text, and the text turned out to be a, uh, about a man by the name of Pesach Rubinstein, uh, who I mentioned briefly at the, at the beginning. Uh, he murdered his cousin-slash-lover-slash-housekeeper uh, because he'd accidentally gotten her pregnant and found out that his wife was on her way over from Poland. So I had never heard of this unusual case, and it was interesting to me. So I went to the American Jewish history section of the library and I began pulling books off shelves and looking in the index for Pesach Rubinstein. I pulled about 50 books off the, shelf, off the shelves looked at, and looked at all their indexes and I found mention of Pesach Rubinstein in three books. One of those books had two sentences about him. One of them had a paragraph and then the other one had about a page and a half. So... You know, it became a fascinating issue. Why, you know, Jew, Jewish historians really were not interested in this case, and I began to research it. So I, at the time, a new online database had come into existence, and it was a database of American English-language newspapers from the 17th century to the 1920s. I put in the name Pesach Rubinstein, and 999 hits came up. And I was shocked because what I immediately discovered was that virtually every newspaper in the United States wrote about this case. It was the OJ trial of 1876. It was a huge, huge phenomenon. Not only that, uh, as I began to research further, I found out that the entire transcript, trial transcript, was published as a book for popular consumption after the trial, and multiple pamphlets were produced 
uh, for as kind of pulp literature uh, about the trial. I even found in a in an, in an anthology of popular songs from the 1870s a song that was called "My Name Is Pesach Rubinstein." So it was a huge, huge case, and, his, and yet historians had mostly ignored it, which, quite frankly, was strange because, to be perfectly honest, it was the biggest interface between Jews and American media uh, in the country up until that point in history. Um, and it would have been lost to history until I stumbled on it just by chance. Now, another way I fell into these strange stories was thanks to cartoons. Uh, my dissertation was on cartoons of the Yiddish press, and during the course of research, I sometimes came across cartoons that I didn't understand uh, or which included characters I didn't recognize. Um, and I, what I came to understand is when I would find a character, a cartoon character I didn't recognize, that research was required to figure it out, and sometimes there was an interesting story behind it. So when I was looking through the Warsaw Yiddish Press of 1929, I began to find images with this woman on it. It was a young woman, usually with a lot of cleavage and a unibrow, you know, one long eyebrow. And so here she is again, and here she is again. And just to give you an idea of what the Yiddish humor press was like in, um, in Poland, the, the caption of this is, Ay, 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 look at those matzo balls. So you can see the image and, and, yeah. and how, how it relates. Um, now, like I said, I didn't, know who this, I didn't know who this was. So I had to start reading the daily papers in order to figure out what was going on and, and why she was appearing so frequently. And what it turned out to be was a, uh, she was the winner of a Jewish beauty pageant called the Miss Judea pageant. Um, and this was a pageant to crown the most beautiful Jewish girl in Poland. Uh, what's more, I discovered that there were a number of scandals connected to this pageant that were really uh, kind of compelling. And I could just let you—I could just show you. This is what she looked like in real life. This is this is her on the cover of the uh, weekly illustrated supplement of the Polish language Jewish Daily, Nasz Przegląd. Uh, so. This beauty pageant generated a huge amount of press. Uh, this woman, her name was Sophia Oldock. She was crowned the, the, the beauty queen, and she was taken all around Warsaw for all kinds of photo ops uh, with uh, local Jewish celebrities and politicians. Uh, she was also invited to the Warsaw Community Council, uh, which was a quasi-government, quasi-governmental institution that governed Jewish life in, in Polish cities, uh, where they had a sumptuous banquet for her, and where the council's president stood up, praised her beauty, and sang her the biblical Song of Songs. Uh, so when after this occurred, and this doesn't sound particularly terrible, but after this occurred, uh, the ultra-Orthodox political parties, the Agudas Yisrael in particular, were furious that she was invited to the community council in the first place, and even more furious that the president had sang her Song of, song of Songs, they claimed he desecrated, uh, you know, the council and 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 you know the Bible, and so they immediately brought all of their boys out of their yeshivas to protest in front of the community council building. The secular paper that uh, that created the pageant uh, 
organized protests of secular Jews to protest the religious Jews on the other side of the street who were protesting the community council president. In between them were Polish policemen who really didn't know what was going on. Uh, now, af- about a week after this, the vice president of the community council, who was part of the ultra-Orthodox Agudas Yisrael party, dies. He was an elderly man. It had nothing to do with this event. But the president of the community council had to speak. He had to give a eulogy in the name of the Warsaw Jewish community at his funeral. And he understood that he had been protested the week before by this same ultra-Orthodox community. So he asked the family if it would be acceptable that he speak. And they said, absolutely, this is a funeral. It's not a political event. You know, please give a eulogy in the name of the community, which he mounts the dais at the funeral, which was attended by about 15,000 Hasidim. And as he mounts the dais, all the kids that had been been told to protest him the week before begin uh, stomping their feet and screaming, Miss Judea, Miss Judea, Miss Judea. He realizes that he's not going to be able to give his eulogy, and he is hustled out of the out of the cemetery. The kids who were chanting Miss Judea continue to do so. The rabbis in the dais tell them to be quiet. The adults among the mourners tell them to be quiet. They lose control. Pushing and shoving starts. Fist fights start. Shrimals begin flying, and as an esteemed rabbi is laid to his rest uh, while um, people are screaming and fighting around his grave. It was a huge, huge scandal in Warsaw in 1929, and I had discovered this story just by finding cartoons that had a figure that I had no familiarity with. So it revealed this really kind of interesting episode in Warsaw Jewish life that involved politics and culture and all kinds of aspects that you know were really fascinating and, and had you know had hadn't been uh, known to historians before. It sounds like the Cohen Brothers. It does. It's it's it, you're right. It's a completely crazy story. Um, another was that Yeah, of course. It was all over the papers. That's that's how I got this information. You know, all all of the all of the stories in my book are are from. Newspapers. They're all, they're, you know, from, you know, I, I, I take from different, you know, I use all the newspapers I'm able to get. Um, but it's all, all the data comes from uh, the daily press. Now, with, with, was there exchanges or like stories from the Polish Jewish press that show up in America? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, in fact, yeah, yes. And in fact, this, this story also shows up in American Yiddish newspapers. Because it is a compelling story, it's you know you know one of the one of the one of the things newspapers want to do is you know you know get readers. They want to sell papers, and any kind of compelling story is a value to them. So when you get a story like this, they're thrilled. You know that. Why didn't they have Pesach reading stories? Well, the well the that the like I said the Yiddish paper. Had the Pesach Rubenstein story. Okay, you said three citations, but you found nine hundred. Okay, that's a different matter because those are the modern historians who are writing about Jewish life in the United States. They're the ones that ignored the Pesach Rubenstein story. the The Yiddish paper at the at, during at that time wrote about it, you know, openly. Interestingly, 
at the same time, the English-language Jewish papers barely wrote about it at all. They, 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 were, they were completely humiliated and embarrassed by this episode and did whatever they could to avoid it. They, they were really very much opposed to, to any kind of, you know, large-scale um, well, exposure of this. The German Jewish population in the United States was not involved in the Yiddish world particularly? Uh, for the most part, no. No. No, generally not. So just another example of an episode like this is in 1927, I began to find cartoons with this woman, uh, kind of a heavyset woman with, with thick, round glasses. She appears in a number of cartoons. You know, I, I find, you know, this image. I don't know who she is. In the cartoon, she's called Zlata. Zlata the Rebetzin. Zlata the rabbi's wife. So what is this? I begin reading, and I fall into a rabbit hole of an absolutely incredible story, uh, which I'll try to describe as briefly as possible. Uh, the, um, uh, a Hasidic Rebbe goes to the United States from Poland in 1923 in order to raise funds from followers who have moved to the United States and have made some money. And he spends a few years there. While he's there, he's staying with a relative. That relative dies. He arranges for his funeral, does his will. Uh, after the shiva ends, that relative's wife turns to the Rebbe and says, Rebbe, I'd like you to marry me. And the Rebbe says, I can't marry you. I'm, I'm married, and I have nine children back in Poland. And she says, I don't care. I'll give you $16,000 if you marry me. So, you know, and this is in 1925 by now. So 1925, $16,000 for a, a Polish Rebbe from a small town is a lot of money. So he says to her, I can't marry you. I'm already married. So someone tells him, you know, Rebbe, you can marry this woman in a court of law here. You can have a civil marriage with her She'll be happy. She'll be married to, a, to a, a rabbi as she wants. She'll give you the money. You don't recognize this as a legitimate marriage because it's not a Jewish ceremony. You could go back to Poland with the money. She'll be happy and you'll be happy and that'll be the end of it. So the rabbi says, that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> and he does it. Right, what could go wrong? So they go to a court, they go to a court in the Bronx and they get married. And, in fact, I uh, went to the New York City archives and I have a copy of the marriage certificate. So he goes back to Poland with the money and she begins sending him a hail of letters telling him that he has to divorce his real wife and marry her in a Jewish ceremony. Additionally, she tells him that she's pregnant and uh, about... Nine months later, she sends him in the mail a wad of cotton with a little piece of skin in it, claiming that it's the foreskin of their baby. She also sends his wife a packet of poison to take. And a few months after that, she shows up in his shtetl in Poland. And she tells him, if you don't marry me in a Jewish ceremony, I'm going to the biggest synagogue in town 
and I will tell everyone everything just before the Torah is read. So the Rebbe is concerned. He, they discuss things, and she says, and it, but if you, give me, if you give me the money back, it'll be okay. Unfortunately, the Rebbe has spent a fair amount of the money, but he starts giving her the money back, uh, but she's not happy because it's not the full amount, and so he starts giving her his wife's jewelry, and, but it's still not enough, and she's harassing him, so finally he gets a lawyer, and he has her, who has her arrested for extortion. She lawyers up, and she's put in jail. She lawyers up from prison and has him charged with bigamy because she's got the marriage certificate. They put her on trial for extortion, and it is this wild trial. The courtroom is packed, you know, with tons of spectators. The press, the Yiddish press is writing full transcripts of the trial every day. She's this dramatic figure. She faints. She screams. She, she, um, she slaps the prosecutor. It's, it's, you know, it's total drama. They find her guilty. Uh, she's sentenced to jail, but they end up deporting her. The bigamy case against the Rebbe is made to disappear, and the whole thing ends. Now, I should just add that, um, you know, she supposedly gave birth to a son. She was 63. So, uh, I don't know how possible that is. But, uh... No, the trial was in Poland. The trial was, yeah, because the whole, that, that whole part of the, part of the uh, episode occurs in Poland. But it was, but, but the trial was written about in the New York Yiddish newspapers. Because it was an incredible incredible story and that's the in, in my book that's the eponymous bad rabbi chapter well, that, it would make an amazing movie it would make an absolutely amazing amazing movie oh, and this is and actually this is them this this is uh, this is him and uh, her she had her picture superimposed on his it's not it wasn't actually taken together Photoshopping before the report. Yes, Photoshop. it's Photoshop before Photoshop. That's true. So lastly, um, I'll just describe another way in which I found some of these some of this material. Um, one day, so I found most of the materi- this, this material in the Yiddish press on microfilm. I don't know if any of you have used microfilm. It's not the most engaging way to do research, but this is what existed. Now a lot of this is uh, available online, but when I was doing this, you could only get it at microfilm. So... In Yiddish newspapers in Poland, uh, cartoons, which is what I was researching, only appear in the Friday edition. So I would turn the dial and skip from Friday to Friday, just looking for cartoons. So one time it landed on a Sunday. I went past where I was supposed to go, and because there's no Saturday paper, so I, you know, I land on this Sunday paper, and this is the page that I saw in front of me. And the top article, the headline of the top article is two wives blazing punches and the police. So I read that headline and I think to myself, I'll bite, you know, sounds interesting. And the story turns out to be about a man who's known only as Avram Aleph. He's Avram A. Uh, And his story is that he fell in love with his wife's best friend. He secretly married her and set her up in an apartment outside of town 
and shuttled between the two women, telling the first wife he was away on business when he was visiting his second wife. The neighbors of the first wife figured out what was going on, and they told his older brother, who was a fanatically religious chosid, and his brother arranged for a hearing at the Warsaw Rabbinical Court to which he physically dragged his younger brother. When they arrived, a panel of three rabbis was waiting. Both wives were there, as well as about 40 members of the first wife's family. The rabbis ruled that he had to divorce both women, which they did on the spot. They wrote out writs of divorce. He signed them. He gave them to the women. The women gave them back to the rabbis, making it official. When it was official, his older brother ran over to him, punched him in the face. The, third, the, the, the 40 members of the first wife's family jumped on the second wife and began beating her up. The rabbis ran out, and uh, the shamus, the, the assistant, called the police who came and arrested everyone. So I'm sitting in front of a microphone reader, and I read this story, and I'm amazed you know, I've been in, you know, I've spent years in graduate school, graduate school and, you know, hundreds of hours of Jewish history classes. I've read thousands of pages of his Jewish history books, and I have never heard anything like this. This is just, this is just mind-blowing. So what I discovered was this was a journalistic phenomenon. Editors of the Warsaw Yiddish Press knew that there were always knockdown, drag-out fights in front of the rabbis of the Warsaw Rabbinate and specifically sent journalists to go report on it. And one of those journalists was a young Isaac Beshevis singer who got a lot of story ideas from <laughs> these experiences. And just to give you an idea of, so, of what some of this stuff is like, I'll read, I'll, I'll read an example. So this one is from 1934, and uh, the headline uh, is A Hot and Bloody Day in the Rabbinate. Yesterday in the Rabbinate was a hot one and bloody too. Good sense was butchered and the blood flowed like water, and rest assured that the rabbis ran out in the middle of these cases. All of the disputes broke out in connection with the divorce proceedings, which unfortunately have occurred all too often as of late. The first fight occurred between the owner of the garden restaurant, 45-year-old Masha Becker, and her second husband, 25-year-old Yitzchak Lerner, an employee in her restaurant. Five years ago, Becker's first husband died, and she took Lerner the waiter as her husband. But in the restaurant, she, tr she still treated him like a servant. Lerner refused to put up with that, and he called his wife to the rabbinate and asked the rabbis to have her sign the business over to him. Words were exchanged, and Lerner slapped his wife. This didn't seem to bother her at all, and she blackened his face with the contents of an inkwell. No agreement was reached. A second couple beat each other up over a heated issue. A certain libel Nyman was a frequent guest at his fiancée's house, where he would come to eat and occasionally sleep over, until his fiancée ended up with a bun in the oven. But in front of the rabbis, he said he didn't know anything about it. What, the girl screamed? Now you don't know anything? Here, now you'll know something. And she punched him in the mouth so hard that she knocked out two of his teeth and completely soaked him with blood. 
A third case didn't even make it into the courtroom. It played out in the hallway. A young man with four women, two wives and two brides, showed up in the hall. They pounded one another so badly before the trial that the police had to be called, who were only able to pull the combatants, uh, combatants apart a- after great effort. What a hot day it was yesterday in the rabbinate. So this is, this is the type of, of reporting uh, that we're dealing with. Now, one of the startling aspects of these stories is they reveal a component of Yiddish-speaking Jewry that flies in the face of traditional stereotypes. The plethora of frequently bad and frequently stupid decisions followed by furious anger that explodes in violence occurred so often among these Jews that I'm still surprised no scholar ever considered it. While internal Jewish discourse maintains a stereotype that Jews are highly intelligent, the classic Yiddish kop or Jewish brain, the stories of Warsaw Jews reported on by the journalists of the Yiddish press provide a radically different picture uh, of these people. Now, in his book of essays on Freud, Jews, and modernism, the historian, historian Peter Gay comments that, and I'm quoting here, there is a historical and sociological study that desperately needs to be undertaken that of stupid Jews. The material would be abundant and the results would correct the widespread and untenable notion that Jews are by endowment more intelligent than any other people. And that could be the end of what? Could be the end of it could be, I know. So Gay is undoubtedly correct in his assertion that the material would be abundant. The Yiddish press in its heyday from the turn of the 20th century through the 1930s offers myriad stories of imbecilic Jews caught in an endless array of problematic situations. Not only do they uh, function as an antidote to the unreality of an alleged Jewish brilliance, but they are also a joy to read. And I'll just read you a couple of examples before I close just so you get an idea of what some of this is like. This one is from the Forverts in New York from March 15, 1913. 18-year-old Esther Goldberg, a pretty girl who lives at 20 Pitt Street on the Lower East Side, went out early in the morning to the grocery store to get some rolls for breakfast. Suddenly, she saw her neighbor, a young tailor by the name of Harris Bloom, who was coming home late from a dance, getting attacked by a thief who popped Bloom on, so hard on the head he couldn't see straight. The thief grabbed Bloom's money and took off running. Miss Goldberg, a Cossack of a girl, however, gave chase. She caught up with the thief on Grand Street and punched him so hard he went tumbling down. With that, she jumped on top of him and pounded him with her fist until he saw stars. The robber was only saved because the police showed up and took him to jail. Um, Here's another. This one is from Warsaw from December 11th, 1927. It's called Gang of Well-Known Criminals is Arrested in Yankel Bavarnik's Casino. Police investigators have announced that criminal elements have been cheating in Yankel Bavarnik's well-known card club with the use of a new invention, mechanical cards. The trick with these cards is that queens suddenly turn into kings, kings turn into jacks, and numbered cards change from high numbers to low according to the wishes of the cheater. During the course of the investigation, a large number of agents visited Yakov Bavarnik's on Thursday night. A group of 26 people were killing at a game of Tertel Mertel using the mechanical cards. Tertel Mertel is a, is a Yiddish name of a particular card game that I haven't quite figured out yet. The entire group, along with Yankel Bavarnik, were soon taken into the Investigations Bureau, where it became evident that, the group, that part of the group consisted of suckers and the rest clever con artists. They included the following. 
Tuvia Mlinaj, who had come from Warsaw for pleasure from Hamburg, where, he's no, where he is known as a swindler and a safecracker. Václav Barshinsky, a fence. Shmuel Barch, a well-known specialist in the art of pickpocketing. Yankov Torma, who sat, served time for fraud. Shia Pilts and Ber Yudashka, both well-known crooks. Yitzchak Bronstein and Leib Rafis, both arrested for robbery six times. Moshe Zalewski, also known as Litvin, regarded as the best lock picker in Warsaw up until a year ago. I didn't know that there's rankings for lock pickers in Warsaw, but apparently there were. Aaron Schneiderman, a safe cracker. Laser Flockstrom, a house burglar. The most interesting character from among those under arrest is the tramway thief Avram Weisboim, who is known as Lota Ronschke, or Little Golden Hand. Weisboim is well-known in the criminal underworld not only as an excellent artist, but also for having managed to escape the clutches of every detective in the city. The arresting officers therefore ordered Weisboim to be bound in chains. That's it. It sounds like what? Right. Yeah. So I'll just read one last one. Uh, this is from uh, Warsaw, 1938. The title is Blind, Yank- Blind Yankel Opens a University for Thieves. The successful but elderly pickpocket, Yankov Pomerantz, also known as Blind Yankel, is very popular in the world of thieves. Mainly, he's regarded as an excellent professional, but he's also retired and living off the advice he gives to youngsters while they attempt to go to work. The advice business has done quite well, but since in today's business world, one cannot simply charge money for simple words, Blind Yankel came up with another idea. He thus opened a school for young thieves uh, where he teaches his students both the theory and practice of the profession. Professor Yankel even prepared a lesson with mannequins, which beginners worked on with straight razors. Afterwards, he would bring his young students out into the streets. The practical lessons would take place in the markets and in the Muranover Hollyas, where there's always a lot of noise and action. Instead of taking tuition, Blind Yankel was paid with his students' first earnings, which they earned in the streets. The school business would have gone quite well, if not for the police. It didn't take long for them to discover his institution of higher learning. Professor Yankel and his two assistants, Shloimi Mandelboim and Yoel Pasternak, landed in Paviak Prison. Also held were a number of young talents, also students of Blind Yankel. So, the precursor to Oliver. Right. <laughs> right. So, as I mentioned, <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's you know contemporaries. Let's say we don't see much discussion of Jews like this in historiography. Yet, in the pages of Yiddish newspaper, these Jews were legion. Short tempers and Jew-on-Jew violence were common fare in immigrant and migrant Jewish populations. Living haunched by jowl in uh, poor neighborhoods, Yiddish-speaking immigrants not only had to contend with broken families and poverty, but squalid, overcrowded living quarters, job insecurity, and having to live life frequently in a new language and sometimes in an unfamiliar land. The frequent violence that occurs in their communities represents the moments when words failed them and had no alternative but to raise their fists to communicate. But what's more, we find them in every Yiddish newspaper in New York, Warsaw, or in Pinsk. We're lucky that Yiddish journalists had the foresight to record it. Now, when scholars engage in research on Yiddish-speaking Jews or when families get get together and talk about their immigrant forebears, about their bubbies and their zaydas, these are not usually the stories they tell. 
But these stories are nonetheless part of the Jewish story, and unsavory as some of them may be, they do warrant a place in the historical record. So Bad Rabbi is a small attempt to retrieve some of the flotsam and jetsam of Yiddish land, the stories of the Jewish two-bit nobodies who would have been otherwise forgotten. Thanks. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to take Right. And there, pre-World War II, they're always seen as the losers who couldn't make it the old country and came over. Right, in a lot whereas, of cases that's... Whereas after World War II, they're always seen as the intelligent ones right. who need to get out. And right. Did you... Well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the disparity. I mean, if you, like, when you, when you make the decision to immigrate, you have to have a reason to go. If you are successful, if you have a, if you have a successful business... Or if you are, you know, doing well financially, uh, and you're not, you know, being attacked or abused, it's reasonable that you're going to stay where you are. So it was really the poorest and you know the most desperate people who immigrate. But yes, in in you know in the historical mirror, you know, you see that immigration saved people's lives. Because had they stayed, they would have been murdered. More than being stupid, like because that last one obviously is really stupid to think you can open up a food school. Um, you know, it seems like we've lost so much color. Yes. Like I mean, we just have the static view of the you know stoic immigrant. Yeah. And we've lost all the color that made them live and breathe. Right. You know, the whole it's like the lost Lower East Side or something. Right, exactly. That's 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 one of the reasons I found these stories so appealing. It's I, I was just you know they, they were you know, you know for the most part in America Jews have become middle class. Uh, they're English speaking. Uh, you know their you know ethnic component has for the most part disappeared, and uh, you know these you know their immigrant forebears who you know maybe they don't know very much about or they may even be embarrassed about them were really colorful, amazing, beautiful people who lived very rich lives. I mean, obviously not everyone is stupid or a criminal or a failure, uh, but this was their world, and it was fascinating. And the only place where this is described in, you know, incredible detail is in Yiddish newspapers. And so, I, I mean, I would sit in front of microfilm, you know, all day long, reading these papers. It was, it was so compelling. Um, was this as much a class phenomenon? If you were the equivalent generations of the Irish immigrants or the Italian Yeah, of course. You had the whole same of course. and experience and everything? Of course, but the, the difference was that the Yiddish press was such a unique phenomenon. I mean, yes, you had... Uh, you know, Irish-run newspapers, you had Italian-run newspapers, but their quantity w- never reached what the Yiddish press reached. There were five, in the 1920s, there were five daily newspapers in New York City. Uh, the, the, the Yiddish press was the largest immigrant, or the, I'm sorry, the largest foreign language press in the history of the United States. Bigger than Spanish. It, it I mean, one of the, interesting aspect here is Jews came at a time when print media 
was the only form of media. And as a result, as a highly literate population, uh, you know, even, I mean, there were illiterate Jews, certainly, but most Jews at least learned to read. And so the newspaper really became, in a lot of ways, their home away from home. It was their guide to the new world, and it also brought news of the old world and of the whole world. So this new, these newspapers really contained everything that they needed and became so important to them. And also, you know, described their lives as well. And many of them survived. The papers? Yeah, I mean, the papers were saved by libraries and institutions. Uh, they were put on microfilm. Uh, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of hard copies left of these papers. Um, so in some cases... And, and, there's actually a very unfortunate thing occurred. In the 1950s, the New York Public Library microfilmed the entire run of the, of the forward uh, and then decided that they, since they had the microfilm, they could save shelf space by throwing out the hard copy. So they threw out their hard copy. And as a result, there's no complete hard copy in existence of this newspaper, which is a tragedy because when they microfilmed the paper, you had, a, you had a technician turning, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages, and so sometimes you'll come across a, a microfilmed page of, of the forward, and there'll be a hand in the middle of it, or it'll be blurry. And that's the, that's the document of record. So... Uh, was the Eastern European press easier to find in this country than it was there? Did most of that get wiped out in World War II? Well, no, because you had, for instance, the um, you know Polish National Library had a fair amount of this material. There's an institute called Jich, which is the Jewish Historical Institute of Warsaw. They have a fair amount of this material. That wasn't destroyed by the Nazis. Uh, some of it was, some of it wasn't. So, for instance, YIVO, where I work, was originally founded in Vilna. And so during the... They're very kind of... In, I'm not sure I want to get into this because it's a, somewhat of a long story, but during the war, the Nazis took over the YIVO building and used it as a collecting point for rare materials that they were stealing from libraries and museums all over the area, and they brought Jews from the ghetto to catalog and, um, and pack it for shipment to Germany. These Jews uh, secretly placed a lot of YIVO documents and materials that had been collected over the years, Yiddish theater posters, uh, material from Yiddish schools and, uh, you know, Yiddish schools in, in Vilna, all kinds of material that, that the Yivo had collected. They put it, they secretly put it in the shipments going to Germany uh, because they figured that the Germans wouldn't win the war and someone would find it afterwards uh, and would know what to do with it. That, in fact, happened. Uh, the U.S. Army found it, and since Yivo had an office in New York, they sent it to Yivo in New York. Another group that was working there brought documents and rare books back to the ghetto with them because the Evo building wasn't in the ghetto and they buried it and they came back after the war and dug that up and then sent it to Evo after the war. Um, and uh, the, in fact, there's a fabulous book about this called uh, the, the Book Smugglers by David Fishman that I highly recommend. Uh, the, um, and so the Evo building itself, itself was destroyed in the war. So a lot of material was lost there as well. But, um, uh, yeah, a lot of the material was saved, but a lot was, was also lost. It's, you know, it's, it, it varies. It varies, you know, it depends what it was. You know, some material survived in the Soviet Union. 
uh, it, you know, it's, it's variable. All right, anyone? Thank you, Dr. Eddie Portboy. All right, thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.